Is it, is it better to go to the house of feasting or the house of mourning? The house of mourning. When I go and visit people that have particularly physical illnesses, struggles, God just uses that in my own heart. And I come away more burdened to pray for the person, and I come away grateful that up till this point, I enjoy the blessings that God has allowed me to enjoy. I have no guarantee on tomorrow. I want to be thankful for what I have today. It's the right way to live. It's the wrong way to live, to just trip through this life without thought for God and all of the good blessings that He gives us. I want to go to chapter 3 of Revelation and look at this church at Sardis. We've been in a series, Post-it Notes, from Patmos. The writer is John the Apostle. He's an old man. He's banished to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. He's, he's the last living apostle. The others are, have predeceased him, <clears throat> martyred in a myriad of ways, those apostles. So John's been banished to probably work in the mines of, uh, for the Roman Empire. The churches that he and the other apostles have started are in various stages of decay. Jesus is gone. The Roman Empire is still against Christians and persecuting and killing them. Sin is running rampant in the empire and to some degree in the churches. Christians and churches are fighting each other. The situation looks bleak and he's an old man and he needs encouragement. And God gives it. He gives them the book of Revelation where God outlines what's going to happen all the way to the end. And you get to the end and the end is this. God wins. We win. Jesus wins. He needed encouragement. He got the encouragement. We call that letter, we call that encouragement the book of Revelation. And quite a revelation it is. We're looking at the different letters that's found in chapters 2 and 3. The current situation that John, in, of John's day, the situation of those churches, and there's messages, letters to those churches. God sees them. He takes note of what's happening in His church, and He gives instruction and rebuke. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church of Sardis, write... These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's Jesus Christ. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, 
The same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The church at Sardis. Sardis was an impregnable city. We are here. We looked at Ephesus and then Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira last week, Sardis. <clears throat> Next week, Pastor Colton starts <laughs> because I'm doing a discipleship class. And I said, well, what about Philadelphia and Laodicea? Philadelphia, December, the first Sunday night of December, I'm preaching a message on this letter to the church. And we'll pick up Laodicea. I mean, they're bad anyway. Laodicea, I mean, they're just... Who wants to hear about those people? <laughs> we'll catch them later. <clears throat> Sardis was an impregnable city on an Acropolis 1,500 miles above the valley floor below where five major roads junctioned. And so this is a major trade and your manufacturing center. A notable shift takes place in this letter. All the other letters, when Jesus addresses the church, He gives words of commendation and words of condemnation. The things that He sees that He can bless and the things that He's going to correct. The things that He likes, the things that He doesn't like. Not with this church. What's missing with this church no words of commendation. It's just rebuke. The first blank in your notes is reproof. Reproof, reproof only. What is this message to the church at Sardis? And by application, what would its message be to us today? As in every letter, we learn something about the author, Jesus Christ. And in this letter, it's this. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Many or most commentators agree that this reference to the seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's other interpretations, but the vast majority of conservative Bible scholars believe this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Write down in the notes Isaiah 11 and verse 2. I'm going to read it to you. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel, might, the Spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Yeah, I'll add all that up. There's seven. Seven spirits resting upon him. And the seven stars, now that's easier. That's the seven pastors of the churches of Asia Minor. The lesson I see in this is that Jesus Christ is represented in His church through the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit in Him and the people in the church that are saved have the Holy Spirit. Jesus represents the church through the Holy Spirit. He mediates His rule through godly human agents called angels or messengers messengers or pastors. This is who Jesus is. 
the sovereign leader of his church. Jesus has a vested interest in the church. He died for it. It's his. And I'll tell you what that does for me. When things happen in the church, in leadership, that I don't like, that I don't agree with, and, and I'll just be transparent with you, I don't agree with every decision Pastor Wendell makes, but I am not going to cause any trouble because this church belongs to Jesus. It is not for me to try to stir up something and, and truth be known, probably most of the time when I disagreed, I found out later I was wrong. <laughs> But it's his church, and we better not mess with it. That's, that's like somebody messing with your kids. Amen. You know, you can give a wallop to your kids in the right way at the right time, but you don't want anybody else doing it. And the church is Jesus's. He died for it. We better not cause trouble in his church. It is a safe thing to believe that. And it is a dangerous thing to think you can sow discord in the church and God won't take note of that. Oh, he'll take note. And he will take action. Here's the indictment. Verse 1, the latter part of the verse. I know thy works, that thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. So A in your notes, they had a reputation without reality. Reputation without reality. He knew their works, not just what they did, but he knew how they did it and why they did it. Their life was an open book because he sees all, he knows all, he knows their works. And he alone can judge his church and his people. Nothing is hidden from his sight. When our works are burned up at the judgment seat of Christ and with, as wood, hay, and stubble, we're going to know this. The judgment was righteous. He's right with what he did because he really does know. He sees. Now, years ago, my father-in-law came to visit us and we took him to Cabela's. Has anybody been to Cabela's? <laughs> Look at all that. Everybody's been there. I've been to Cabela's one time in my life. <laughs> I enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> You're gone tomorrow. <laughs> you went to Cabela's and bought a shirt. Well, I went to Cabela's. This was quite a few years ago. And when I walked in, if you went, I don't know what it's like today, but back then, you go to the left and toward the back, and it's like a nature trail back there. And as I went back there, I saw, I saw all kinds of animals in their natural habitat. I, I saw deer of different variety, uh, mule deer, white-tailed deer, red deer, and there's a bunch of other kind of deer. I saw moose. Is that a deer? It's in the deer family. I saw moose. I saw bear. Is that a deer? No, it's not. I saw bear. <laughs> I saw mountain lions and mountain goats and beavers and birds and caribou. I saw a musk ox and more. All beautifully set in their natural habitats and everything appeared absolutely normal 
but there was just one thing missing. <laughs> Life. Life was missing. Every one of them was dead. They looked really good. They looked real authentic, but they were dead. That's Sardis. Oh, they looked really good. They had a reputation, but they were dead. I remember going to a church one day, and uh, I was there to speak, a church, Independent Baptist Church, in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, if you're not from there, it's Louisville. If you're from there, it's what? Louisville. Louisville. <laughs> you almost got to eat it in the back of your throat. Louisville, I'm from Louisville. <laughs> I went to this church. I had heard about this church, a kid growing up. This was one of the largest independent Baptist churches in the country and probably the largest one in that state. Huge bus ministry. Mr. Bus, Wally Beebe, was on staff at that church. Big ministry, big reputation. I grew up hearing about this. Hundreds of people getting saved. I just, I wanted to see this church. And I got there, and I was never so disappointed in all my life. Because it was dying. It was a shadow of what it was once. And what used to be a church of thousands had dwindled to a church of a very few hundred, 150 just a shadow of what I expected this tremendous experience to see what God was doing here. And I walked away realizing that its life was ebbing away. That is Sardis, a church that is dying. What are the signs of a dead or dying church? Well, you can ask it in the reverse. What's the signs of a thriving church? And we might call attention to sound doctrine and, and godly love and unity and evangelism and holy living. But a dying church, what's, what's some characteristics of a dying church? In your notes, commitment to doctrine is waning. They're getting soft on the scripture. Uh, we don't need that bloody religion anymore. Uh, hey, we don't preach on anything about hell because that's not palatable in 21st century America. We're going to make our message fit the lifestyle of the sinners in the country because we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. They should feel uncomfortable, and so should we. If we sin, we should feel uncomfortable. God's Word still means what it says and says what God means and we need to believe it straight. But a dying church, their doctrine changes. Love and unity are replaced by strife and divisions and polarizing around personalities or maybe even outside organizations. And some churches will get reputations like, we're, we're a Bob Jones church. We are, we are an Awana church. We are a, a, a Master's Club church or a Ma Majesty Music church or a... And you can plug into whatever they're identified by or want to be identified by. And there's polarizing within the church and disunity growing. Well, I love 
some of those organizations I just mentioned. And, 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 and my daughter lives at the Wiles. I love the Wiles. But my commitment is at Valley Forge Baptist Temple. There are some Christian colleges that I think the world of. They've done a good job. But my commitment is Valley Forge Baptist Temple. There's other organizations that I can appreciate and love and pray for. But I'll tell you, my commitment is at Valley Forge Baptist Temple. This is, this is God's work where He planted me. And I don't, doesn't mean I'm against all the others, but I'm for here. And I want to put my energies here. A dying church loses its focus. That's your fill-in. Focus on the lost. Perhaps too busy ministering to each other. We can be so busy ministering the saints, we don't reach the sinners. Now, of course, we're not against ministering to the saints. But churches can get sidetracked on good things. Ministering just within the body. People, they, they can have this practice and that league and this sport and this class and that hobby and running in all directions all the time and they fail to carve out time for the one thing Jesus left us here on this earth to do and that is to win souls to Christ. I mean, who cares if... Forget it. <laughs> A dying church grows more worldly. They grow more worldly. A commitment to be holy and chaste because it's right because God ple it pleases God and gives Him glory, a dying church lets that go. People cease to govern themselves. No one's going to tell me what to do. They follow the doctrine of Balaam. We've seen other churches in this, these letters. And the, the, church of the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, like the church of Pergamos did, or the doctrine of Jezebel that the church of Thyatira did. They're dying. And they're going, to, they're going to go all the way to death. Cold, formal, liturgical worship, concerned about social ills and politically motivated, like many denominational churches today, but they're missing the gospel of Jesus Christ and evangelism and holy living. That's the church at Sardis. It's dying. There are people in the church, many have already died. Not all of them, but most of them. Populated by unredeemed people. A church filled with unredeemed people. I think I told you several weeks ago, early in the youth ministry, I called a bunch of different churches to find out, how do I go to heaven? That was my question. I, I, I how do I know how to go to heaven? And after that exercise was over, I came to the conclusion, they don't know. The Catholic priest didn't know. The Lutheran guy didn't know. The Presbyterian guy I called. I'm not saying every Presbyterian church and every Lutheran, but the ones I called. They didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know. They, you're the leader of the church. You don't know how to go to heaven? How are your people going to know how to go to heaven if you don't know how? That's dying. Here's the instruction for this church, verses 2 and 3. This is the instruction paragraph. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die. For I, will, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, 
and thou shalt not know the hour that I will come upon thee. What do you say to a dead church? What advice would you give to a believer today in a dead church? Now, it's a lot easier. Yeah. All right. Wake up. Get out. Now, it's easy for us to say, get out. But God does not say that in this church. Now, I'll tell you why I think he didn't. Because you know, when we say get out of a dead church, there's probably a handful of other gospel preaching churches in the area. But at this time, at this time, get out of the church at Sardis probably meant there's no church to go to. Because the church, the closest one is 40 miles away and the fastest mode of transportation is an ox cart. So if, if they get away from those Christians, the ones that are in the church, then there's no place for them to go unless God raises up another leader and starts a new church. But th that's why I think he didn't say get out because it's, uh, there's, there's no place to go yet. And this is still in the infancy of the church age. But I certainly would say that, Kathy, to people today. In a dead church, find an alive church and go cast your lot there and serve. So here's the instructions that he gave. A, watch, watch. Open your eyes to what's going on. In, the, in history past, in Sardis, this was the capital of the, the Lydian Empire. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to give you... A, uh, a whirlwind history lesson right here. All right, Jerusalem, you always want to know where Jerusalem is. When you look at a map, you want to know where Jerusalem is. Here's Jerusalem. All right, up here is Sardis. And this is what's going to happen in Sardis's earlier life. There is a man that comes to power in Anshan. His name is Cyrus the Great. He's going to build an empire. He, he moves out of Anshan and he conquers the Elamites and expands his kingdom. And then he sets his eyes on the Medes. He goes and attacks the Medes and specifically the, the king, uh, Astyagis, and he conquered the Medes. When he gets to this point right here, the guy that is the king of Sardis sees what's going on and with the the Medes eliminated right here. Croesus, the king of Sardis, figures, I'm going to expand my kingdom of Lydia, and I'm moving east. So Cyrus, he keeps expanding west, and Croesus. Now, you've heard the name Croesus, right? Greek mythology or Greek history, Croesus. You ever hear of the phrase, as rich as Croesus? Croesus. That's okay, I guess. <laughs> it's not a rebuke. That's ours. Everybody's fine. <laughs> Rich as Croesus. <laughs> now, now it's even hard to say the next. <laughs> Famed for being wealthy. I guess he wasn't too famous. <laughs> but he's, Croesus was the one that first minted gold and silver coins. He was, in his day, known for being the wealthiest of the kings. He's going to expand his kingdom, and so he moves east, and he happens to run into Cyrus in the plains of central Anatolia, and they battle. 
and it's a vicious battle, and it ends in a stalemate. Nobody wins. So Croesus turns around, and he goes back home. Winter is coming on, and what always happened is when winter came, they quit fighting. It's not easy to fight in the wintertime. It's not comfortable to fight in the wintertime. And so the armies go home, and they disband. That's what, that's what uh, Croesus did. He comes, and he disbands his army, and he goes back to his fortress on the Acropolis of Sardis. But Cyrus did not go home. He followed, and even though he had to travel hundreds of miles in winter over difficult terrain, he shows up outside of Sardis, and Croesus now has to regather an army together, and they battle, and Croesus loses. And now he's secure up in his fortress. He lost the battle in the valley below, but he's up in his fortress. And, and so what? He, he just figures he's going to be fine there. And Cyrus, he, uh, he said to his men, whoever finds a way up, I am going to enrich him. Now, we're looking at Sardis. This is the Acropolis where the fortress was. Theater, stadium. This is a, a Ionian Greek city. So it's built like Greek cities. Now, I showed you that. So you can understand why an artist does this. An artist takes the footprints of what's on the ground and then they embellish it and they, they draw what they believe the city looked like based upon the ruins they find in the ground. Croesus is up here on the Acropolis and it's a, it's a pretty formidable place to get up. You gotta, you gotta get up this rock wall to get to the fortress above and Croesus we're safe up here. And Cyrus said, if anybody finds a way up and conquers a city, I'll enrich him. And a Greek was watching one day, and a Lydian, a Lydian up on top, looked over the wall, and his helmet fell off. And it fell down in the valley. So he climbs over the wall, and he, he climbs down. He knows the rock. He knows how to get down, though it looks like a vertical like a vertical slope, no way to, to scale it, he knows the way down. And he, he goes down and retrieves his helmet, and the Greek, or the, the, uh, the Persian, was watching, and he saw, that's how you do it. And the next day, he took a, a group, and they went up the way that the Lydian guy came down, and they conquered the city. And the Lydians didn't even guard the city wall because they felt it was impenetrable. You know what we learn from history? That we don't learn from history. Because 200 and some years later, long after Cyrus the Great is gone, after Alexander and the Grecian Empire defeats the Persians, and now they're gone, and now you have the Seleucid Empire from the remnants of the Greek Empire, it was the Seleucid general that came to Sardis 230 some years after Cyrus Sky scaled it, and they scaled it the exact same way and took Sardis because the Sardians up on top were not guarding the wall because they thought it was impenetrable. They were not watching. They were known for not watching. So when, I think that probably comes into play here where God says to this church of Sardians, watch, you better watch. You better keep your guard up. If anybody needed to know that, 
and, and could understand the import of that, it's going to be the Sardians because twice in their history, their whole city was destroyed because they weren't watching. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know in what hour I come. B, act. Watch, act, strengthen the things that remain, whatever Christian graces and disciplines and truths that have not been entirely snuffed out in this church, you better act upon these. You better hold on to them, speak of them and practice them and exhort others to do likewise and cling to them and fan the, sm the smoldering flames back to a, to a big flame. We better do it. A church better do it. We better act upon what we know is right because if we don't act, those things can die. We better be talking about love. We better be talking about soul winning. We better be talking about holy living. Why? Don't, don't we ever get tired of talking about these things? We better not. If we quit talking about precious things from the scripture, they can die. At least die in the hearts of the people. God says he knows their works, that they're not perfect. In other words, they're, in, they're not mature, they're not complete in God's sight, they're wanting, they may look good from a distance, they may look good on the outside, but they're insufficient. Good enough to build a reputation, but not acceptable to God. Prayers without holy lives, attendance without holy desires, oh, you mean I gotta go to church again? A body without a spirit, they show up to critique, but not worship, a form without substance, What do I have here? It's really peanut shells. There isn't one peanut here. You know, Christians can get just like this. They can, it can be all show. It looks like the real thing, but there's nothing inside it. The reality is gone. I mean, it's, it's, we can become that way. We better have something in our heart that is reflective of what we project on the outside. If we project that we're a Christian and we love God, there better be something down inside that puts reality to that. We better not be just a shell without the, without the inside there. We need the inside. Vance Havner some of you will recognize that name, a celebrated Baptist evangelist of the 1900s. He said this, spiritual ministries grow, go through four stages. And I gave you a little graphic to show that. From a man to a movement to a machine to a monument. From a man. A guy has a burden in his heart. I'm going to do something for God. And God calls him and he goes out and he starts a church. And it's in his heart. And it starts with a man. And then it goes from a man to a movement. People join him. People get saved. People cast their lot. We're in. We're all in. We're going to do something for God. And the, and the man becomes a movement and the church grows. And as the church gets bigger and bigger, it becomes a machine. You've got policies. You've got procedures. You have regulations to get people to do what they should do without the regulations. You got that? what the earlier Christians in the church just did because they had a heart for God as the church gets bigger, 
You have people that won't do that anymore. And then you get policies and procedures and handbooks and it's becoming a machine. You know what it ends up with? A monument when death fully comes. And somewhere in this process, a young man comes out of that and says, God wants me to start a church. <laughs> and he goes out and he starts a church and it starts all over again. How come the church of Sardis isn't around? Or Thyatira? Or Philadelphia? Or Ephesus? What about the church that was at Rome? What about the Thessalonian church and the Berean? And the, Philipp the church of Philip? Where are these churches? Yeah, they died. And other churches were started out. It's a process. Now, how long does it take for that process to happen? I don't know. It's different. There are churches, some churches will die really quick. They die in infancy. And other churches may grow to be 100, 150, 200 years, and they're still preaching the gospel. I don't know how quick it takes for a church to die, but they can die. We better, we better know that. Act C. Remember? Remember how the gospel came to you? Remember how truth got to you? For me, it was Floyd White came out to my house and gave the gospel to my family and some of my family got saved and later Spencer Boone led me to Christ and I can tell you where I was at and, and I can give you a lot of detail about it I'm not going to forget when salvation came to me and somebody encouraged me to write it in my Bible so I wrote it in my Bible and I know it was a revival meeting with Dr. John Rawlings preaching the gospel I walked the aisle from the second aisle back second one in my dad was on the end and during the invitation, I walked forward and Spencer Booth led me to Christ. Amen. Cling. That's the next one. Cling. Cling to the truth. Cling to it. Don't let go of it. Repent is the last one. Look at your sin with remorse like David did in Psalm 51. Repent. Embrace Christ. We're on a journey. And we better, we better act right on this journey. We're running out of time. Inventory. Verses 4 and 5, inventory. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, that's not defiled their garments. Now, this isn't a praise to the church. This is an acknowledgement that in the church, some people, a few people, he says, a few, which means many have defiled themselves, but a few have not. They've not soiled themselves and smeared and polluted their garments. These people have not allowed themselves to become corrupted. That's your fill-in. They haven't become corrupted by contact with the profane and polluted world. Their government was corrupt. The empire was corrupt. Their city was corrupt. The church had become corrupt. But in the midst of all this prevailing corruption, some stood firm. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm sticking with Jesus. You're not going to budge me from that. Some stood firm, and Christ acknowledges that. They have not corrupted themselves. What's the reward for the undefiled Christians in the dead church of Sardis? It says they're going, to, they're going to walk with Christ in white. They're going to be completely righteous. White apparel in the scripture denotes several things. Festivity, victory, 
purity is a fill-in, the heavenly state, any way you look at it, this is a good deal. This is a good deal. We're going to be in white. And it's, when we get to heaven, it's going to be pure and festive and victorious. And it's going to be a heavenly existence. They'll become completely righteous. They will overcome as B and C. They will be secure. And this security that these believers have is seen in a couple of ways. One is their names are not going to be blotted out of the book of life. And second, Jesus is going to confess their names before God in heaven. And then he ends it with, to the churches, uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear. A war this is a warning letter to a dead and to a dying church. It is a warning letter. Now here's what I want us to walk away with, folks. Valley Forge Baptist Temple is always susceptible to this exact thing. And the only thing that stops it is the hearts of the people that have a great heart for God. Amen. Don't lose a great heart for God. Amen. And hold each other accountable for the doctrines of the Word of God. Believe the doctrines of the Word of God. And if somebody says, ah, I don't believe that anymore, that we've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with that. We're not going to let things slide. This is important. It's important not only for us, it's important for our kids and for our grandkids and for the missionaries that are depending on us to hold the rope. So we better, let's just be aware that churches can die and we are always susceptible to that and let's guard against it, all right? We better guard against it. Let's pray. Father, your word is true and we love it. And thank you for Christians that were so faithful to you that they told us the truth and we got saved. And God, I pray that we'll never get over the salvation that you put in us. And God, may we just, I pray we'll just believe your word. And when we read it and we see what you say about sin, that we'll shun it because we, we see what you think about it and what you're going to do about it. And I pray that we'll do the right things because you say you're going to bless us. God, we, we need to believe it. And we love you and we do believe your word. Would you help us day by day to remain strong? Help our church, God, to remain strong. And in areas of our church where maybe weakness starts to crumble in, may we quickly discern it and, and correct it and to continue to build a lighthouse for Christ here so the gospel can go forth to the regions beyond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please open today to Psalm 100. It is one of my many favorite psalms, Psalm 100. There's a Bible on the bench if you'd like to follow along this morning. It is a classic psalm of thanksgiving, but today we're just going to focus on the first two verses. We're currently in a series entitled Real Joy in Tough Times. We saw Paul and Silas singing praises to God even when they were in a jail cell in Philippi. Last time together, we, we looked at real joy in overcoming worry, fear, and anger. Today, I would like us to see that we can have real joy in serving. Real joy in serving. Would you please stand with me as I read the first two verses of Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come into your presence today, into your house, and sing praises to your name.
Thank you that you are worthy of all of our praise. And I ask from the depth of our hearts that we will love you and serve you and give you praise that others might see you working in our lives and we share the great message you've called us to share with other people. Now bless the time of testimony and your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There in your notes you see that the psalmist said we are to serve the Lord with what? With gladness. We are called, we are called as Christian people to serve God. We are called as Christian people to, to serve our family, our church family. We're called to serve our country. But many times that service requires sacrifice. That service requires hardship. And nobody knows that more than military families in time of war. In the last 100 years, people from around the world have called upon us, the U.S., to come to their aid, to come to their rescue. And our leaders knew that if we did not fight evil and tyranny overseas, then one day we would have to fight that same evil on our own shores. The Hannah family is one of those families that answered the call to protect our country. TJ and Kara were members here at VFBT for several years before being transferred away to continue to serve our country. And God has given them two wonderful children, Riley, Joe, and Trace. And so let's thank TJ as he risked his life to serve us and to keep others safe. Let's welcome TJ Hanna as he shares his testimony serving our country in Iraq. Wow, it's, grad, it's uh, great to be back at Valley Forge. Um, it, it is awesome to be here on this day, and I thank you all for uh, allowing me to, to share a, a few moments with you. Uh, it's a humbling experience to be in front of you all as we celebrate Veterans Day. To Americans, this day has been set aside to recognize men and women who have given themselves to defend our nation's flag and the values of our great democracy. As Americans, we have fought many battles, some with the sword and some with the pen, and we have prevailed time and time again to maintain our freedoms and our proud history. I must proclaim, however, we have not done so by ourselves. There exists a power much greater than ourselves, a power our founding fathers were wise enough and faithful enough to credit for the victory over a tyrannical kingdom and the establishment of a new government known as the United States of America. The power rests inside the one and only true God, my God, who is alive today and has been at work for us since the beginning of time, shaping our world throughout history. As much as we like to pat ourselves on the backs, we must give credit where credit is due. My God is the reason I stand before you today. Veterans Day has a special meaning to me, not just because of my service in our nation's military, but also because this day marks a moment in my Christian life which has influenced every step I have taken since. This particular moment made me realize putting my faith in God was the only way. Serving my country while serving my God has provided a joy I could find nowhere else. Things of this world break, bend, corrode, and age, but God's love is perfect, unconditional, everlasting, and free. My first combat tour took place in 2005. I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, 1st of the 502nd Infantry Battalion. My battalion had been deployed to Iraq to establish a presence in an area known as the Triangle of Death. A picturesque place it was, a peaceful place it was not. 
Yusufia, Iraq was in an area positioned just east of Fallujah, south of Baghdad, and north of the Euphrates River. It was mostly farmland Saddam Hussein had set aside for his loyal retired officers. And to say the least, when we arrived, we were not welcomed with open arms. Our first day there, my platoon hit three roadside bombs. We lost our lieutenant, and I personally fired over 300 rounds of 50 cal ammo. During these first few moments faced with real combat, I, ha I recall having three thoughts. Number one, I wish I was wearing my ear, protect my ear protection. Uh, number two, this job is a lot different than the one I previously had. And number three, God, I can't do this without you. Months later on Veterans Day, 13 years ago this very day, at nearly this exact same time, my platoon was tasked with a routine day mission. We were to escort my commanders to another base in Mamadiyah, Iraq, about 13 miles away. This was a common route for us as it connected our outpost with the battalion's headquarters. Checkpoints littered the, the route to prevent uh, and provide safety from ambushes and roadside bombs. I had been selected as the lead gunner in the convoy, which historically was the truck least likely to be hit. A lot of this was due to the technology at the time. The triggermen would use the, the first one or two trucks in the, in the convoy to get their timing right and then uh, hit the trigger on the third or fourth truck um, to impact them with the, with the bomb. I was happy to go on this trip because a run to the uh, battalion base always meant hot chow, air conditioning, and telephones, stuff we didn't have at my little outpost. Plus, an escort mission meant we would not be doing any foot patrols or other missions that day. It was going to be an easy day. After all, it was Veterans Day. We stayed at our battalion headquarters for a few hours waiting for our commanders to finish their business, and by the time they were ready to leave, it was dark. This was actually the preferred time to travel as we would wear night vision goggles and drive without any lights on. Uh, the enemy had, did not have that technology. They didn't have night vision. And so when we drove at night with our lights off, basically we could run uh, undetected or unseen. It was a rare thing at the time to hit a roadside bomb at night, and I felt good about our chances making it back without incident. As we left the battalion gates, I flipped on my night vision goggles, and the world turned a shade of green. But I could see almost as if it was daytime. I figured we'd be back in Yusufia in about 30 minutes. About halfway back, as we winded our way along the route, we came upon a bend in the road we had driven past many times before. I was standing up in the gun turret, trying to look for anything out of the ordinary, when I noticed what appeared to be a spotlight shining down on a point of the road just up ahead. Uh, it was a weird thing to see a spotlight shining from above. There was no street lamps, no nothing like that. It was complete darkness. I just had my night vision on. Uh, so when I saw this light, I basically, I closed my eye that was looking through the night vision. I only had it on one eye and looked with my naked eye to see if I could see that light. And it was nothing but darkness. Um, I again opened my eye that was looking through the night vision and I saw that spotlight. It was about this time I had a feeling, I heard a voice, something came over me I can't explain that told me to get down. Recognizing this was a God thing, I immediately ducked behind the armor shielding of the turret just as a massive explosion swept over my truck. It knocked me unconscious and I came to him in my executive officer's lap in the back seat while he was slapping me on the face trying to wake me up. My truck was full of smoke and I could see flames pouring over the hood of the Humvee. The driver was telling me to get up and return fire as the other trucks in the convoy were engaging targets with everything they had. 
As I got back into the gunner's turret, the first thing I noticed as I looked behind me was the dotted lines of tracer rounds pouring from each, other, each of the other truck's guns. It reminded me of a scene out of Star Wars. As I began to feel for my gun, I immediately realized how things could have been much different for me. My, 52, my M2 50 cal had been blown off its pinnel and the barrel of the gun had been bent and riddled with holes. If you all have seen an M250 cow, it's a heavy weapon. It takes an awful lot to bend that gun and to put holes in it. The turret armor had been blasted with the full force and shrapnel from a very large roadside bomb. The bomb we had hit was so large, I later heard the truck behind us in the convoy thought their truck had initially been hit. My first sergeant was yelling in agony as he had been critically wounded. He was driving basically in the, the front right um, seat of the vehicle. And amazingly, my vehicle continued forward while on fire and only having three wheels. If you can imagine this chaos, I had just regained consciousness and awoke in the midst of complete craziness. Even so, my first thoughts as I, that I can remember as I came to were not of fear, but rather thoughts of awe, wonder, and thankfulness to my God. I wasn't afraid for a second because I, I knew God was there. This is not meant to brag on myself for the lack of fear, I say this to brag on our awesome God. He took away my fear and shielded me. Just as Psalm 91 reads, on that day, as stated in, second, in the second verse, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. In that situation, as in most I find myself in, there wasn't much I could do to help. There wasn't much I could do in that battle, but I didn't need to because God was fighting it for me. He had shown himself to me in such a way that caused me to take a knee, to place my, myself inside his protection. My fear didn't stand a chance, and his shield protected me and forbid any fear to enter. In Psalm 3320, it says, he is our help and our shield. It was in that moment I fully understand what it meant to have my, my Lord provide a shield for me. God provided a calm in the middle of a storm because he was there. God was in it because I was not relying on things of this world to keep me safe. Instead, I was relying on the shield of God and my shield of faith. Let me be clear. Believing in Christ doesn't give you permission to be haphazard and careless. My faith in Christ hasn't given me a free pass to live dangerously. When I was in the military, I always maintained my equipment, cleaned my weapons, shined my boots. When I was in Iraq, I never left my ballistic vest by my cot or left for a patrol without water and a, and a full magazine of ammo. I will say, though, as I stepped out on patrol or climbed into a gunner's turret, my faith did not rest on the things I could touch, but instead my faith rested with God. The shield I found myself behind for safety was not made with Kevlar. It was not engineered by man. My shield is created by God. I didn't earn it. It wasn't issued to me by the army. It was given, me, it was given to me through the blood of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins. I put my trust and confidence in my shield of faith over anything that has come from this world, and this especially includes myself. So what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 explains, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is what Noah staked his future on while he waited 120 years for the rains to come. Faith is why Joseph waited 13 years, many of those in prison, for God's plan to unfold. Faith is hard and does not come easy. Just like the muscles in our body, faith must be exercised to grow. Just like any other activity in which you are growing, faith must be exercised every day. Our faith allows us to rely on God and his promises, trusting in the goodness of his character. 
Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. With faith, you accomplish amazing things for God with his power. The mustard seed needs to be watered each day for it to grow. Seemingly, nothing happens for a long time, but then all of a sudden, the tiny seed bursts into the biggest tree in the garden. There's no way for us to predict the moment when our faith will matter most, but when that day comes, I hope to be ready. I was ready in that moment 13 years ago when God shielded me from absolute danger. Relying on my shield of faith hasn't necessarily made, me, made my road less bumpy, but my faith in God has provided comfort when I've encountered difficult times. For most of us, our lives have been met with some type of hardship or trial, or at least will be. My first tour in Iraq, we faced substantial hardship on a routine basis. My company was made up of approximately 100 soldiers. Almost 90% of the men in my company received at least one Purple Heart for injuries inflicted by the enemy. 11 men in my company were killed. These are small numbers when compared to the casualty rates of Vietnam, Korea, and World War II, but they were substantial for this war. We would go, sometimes go up to five weeks without a shower, and I never slept over four hours at, at one time for the entire 12-month tour. This experience was not easy, but I do believe my faith made it tolerable. I often thought about our high casualty rate, but I don't ever recall worrying about it. My faith allowed me to accept what I may not understand and the reasons behind the struggles. My faith allowed me to find joy amidst the hardship. My faith provided me the answers I needed to the questions, why me, why this struggle? The answer my faith provided was, God knows why. So how does my shield of faith help me through life? How did it help me endure the hardships of war through 26 months in a combat zone? Frankly, because it allowed me to let God be God. My faith helped me to understand those trials were simply visits to God's faith gymnasium. Through these trials, God used my faith to strengthen my spiritual muscles. My growing faith allows me to rely on God's word, to have faith in this book, to have faith the Bible is true from beginning to end, to have faith in God and his everlasting love, mercy, and goodness. My shield of faith has helped me provide patience for things out of my control and has provided me joy in service to God. Proverbs 3, 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thy own understanding and reminds me to remain patient in times of uncertainty. I've found many times a roadblock or disappointment in my plan often results in a better outcome as part of God's plan. I have faith God has saved me from unknown and unseen dangers by guiding me away from my path and along his path. In my five years with the Army and now 10 years in law enforcement, I've had many close calls. Some would attribute the near misses to training, instinct, reflexes, or luck. They would be wrong. In life, and especially in the military, we are told to be, to be at certain places at certain times. We show up early to ensure we meet that expectation, but then sit around for hours playing the hurry-up-and-wait game. Sometimes you receive orders that make no sense. Sometimes schedules or plans change for no apparent reason. This happens in the civilian world also. For those of you who have ever traveled by commercial airline, you know what I'm talking about. Flights change, gates change, delays, cancellations. All this is seemingly for no good reason. As frustrating as this can be, in these moments, we need to put things in perspective. 
we need to maintain our faith. We need to know the reason for changes. Or we don't need to know the reason for changes. We don't see the whole picture. We don't know what new information our commanders of the air traffic control tower just received. We may think we could do better and grumble about the inconvenience. We become impatient to the delays and changes. But little do we know there's an equipment failure or a weather event or some other genuine reason for the changes to our plan. The reality of this predicament is we can't see the whole picture. Just like the night I was in the turret with my night vision goggles on, I thought I could see everything, but I couldn't. I had no idea there was a large roadside bomb waiting for me, but God did. God sees everything. It is impossible to fathom, but God knows every grain of sand on every beach and in every desert. He knows every hair on my head and your head. He knows each and every one of us personally and better than we know ourselves. We call God our Father, and we are his children. Let God be in charge. Let God be God. After all, when would it be wise for a child to be in charge of his parents? When we give God control of our lives, when we serve him before all things of this earth, we'll find a peace and joy experienced nowhere else. This joy comes from knowing God, serving God, and trusting God. In closing today, I want to read a verse from 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. After that IED explosion 13 years ago, I found myself in an army hospital in Baghdad getting a cast put on my broken arm. My first sergeant, who had suffered a devastating leg injury, was on the bed next to me. They were prepping him for surgery, and he was feeling the effects of his pain meds. With the tourniquet still applied to his leg and blood, bloody bandages staining the sheets on his bed, he turned to me with a grin on his face and said, hey, that was crazy, huh? Not really in that, like, tone. He was like, hey, that was crazy, huh? But, but I turned to him, and now this was my first sergeant. I turned to him, and I, I replied, no, first sergeant. That was God. Thank you. Thank you so much, TJ. Thank you, Kara. Uh, thank you for loving God. Thank you for loving each other and loving our country. And thank you for faithfully serving when you were here at, at VFBT. Uh, David is the one who said, God is my shield. And when you go through your trials, God can be your shield and your defender and your fortress. He will watch out for you. But you have to put your trust in him and be faithful to him, and you will see him come through for you. Uh, one of the faithful things that TJ did when he was here, he went on uh, one of our mission trips, and he went to Vanuatu, and, and as we got down there, uh, a rumor passed around that wasn't true that he shot Osama bin Laden. <laughs> it sure brought out the crowds, all right? So a guy can even uh, use misinformation, get the crowds out to be able to share the gospel with them. It is important that we say thank you to those who risk life and limb to protect us. God has ordained government as the institution to protect the innocent and to, to bring punishment uh, to those who do evil. And so our citizens are to be protected from enemies, both foreign and domestic, Romans 13. So it, it is right that they bear not the sword in vain uh, to bring uh, uh, protection to us. I'd like to introduce you to three more veterans of the Israeli army that we met last week. 
Uh, we had two busloads and two local Jewish guides. Joe was born and raised in a faithful Jewish home in St. Louis, Missouri. And here you see him next to the Pontius Pilate stone uh, found there at Herod's palace at Caesarea Philippi in the Mediterranean. Uh, critics used to say that Pontius Pilate didn't exist, therefore the Bible is not true. But then they keep digging in the dirt and they find the Pontius Pilate stone, silencing the critics, proving once again, not hundreds of times, but thousands of times, that the Bible is accurate in every single detail. And so Joe was there. He was a great guide. He had actually visited Israel from St. Louis on a summer teen trip to expose, that exposed Jewish teenagers to their homeland and to their biblical heritage. So when Joe fell in love, he and his fiance made a commitment that one day they would move to Israel. And after they were married and had their first two of their four kids, they decided it was time to leave America for their promised land. They started life in Jerusalem in the 1970s. You know that today, every Jewish high school graduate, uh, the, the men spend three years in military service, and the girls spend two years in service, every one of them. The government gives allowances for older men with kids like Joe, yet he still served in the military uh, for a short time and many years in the National Guard. And even though Joe was born in America, and he loves our country. He belongs in Israel. One day I was talking to Joe about the Lord, and I asked him about the Ezekiel 37 prophecy of the valley of dry bones. You know the song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, where God predicts that the Jewish people would return to their land in the last days. And in the valley of Elah, all of our teen boys, we had nine teenagers on the trip, and they were fantastic. Six of them were boys, and here they are reading the David and Goliath story where it happened uh, there in the Valley of Elah. And following that, I shared God predicting the return of the Jews in the last days. And so on the bus, I said to Joe, Joe, let me ask you a question. Do you think it was God that put it in your heart to move to Israel? And he thought about it and he said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Fulfilling Bible prophecy. Avi was the guide on the other bus. Avi's parents were from Morocco. And he moved to, uh, they moved to Israel right before he was born. Avi served 23 years in the Israeli army. And his family is another example of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, of those dry bones coming into a mighty army, the Jews moving back into their land in the last days in our generation. There's now more Jewish people in Israel than in any other, any other place in the world. And that happened in the lives uh, of our teenagers. They've been able to see this. And so Avi loves our country, thankful for the support of the U.S., also a great guide. And then Nissan is the third Israeli veteran I want to introduce to you. Uh, Nissan, he doesn't speak much English, uh, but he, uh, uh, he took good care of us. Joe told us that Nissan was wounded in a battle in the Suez Canal, and he spent more than a month in the hospital. He allowed the ladies to bring their coffee on the bus, so they really appreciated him so much. You know, what's interesting is that most of the Jewish younger men and women in Israel today, they're veterans. They're veterans. They know military service is necessary for their survival of their country, given the many nations and the millions of people that want to destroy them. They serve their country joyfully and without question. 
They say, this is what we do in order to survive. Until recently, Masada, uh, that, that great uh, uh, plateau and fortress of Herod the Great back in the first century there uh, along the coast of the Dead Sea, uh, it used to be a place where the Israeli army uh, would swear in the elite army forces on completion of their six months of basic training. The Nahal Infantry Brigade, they would make a 35-mile-long beret march, and the final stage of the march came when the young soldiers climbed Masada's snake path to the summit, about 1,500 feet uh, from the ground level, and they would pledge allegiance to Israel. And the last phrase uttered in that ceremony was Masada shall not fall again. Masada shall not fall again after the destruction by the Romans in 70 AD. Well, here are the Valley Forge uh, freedom fighters that hiked Masada. About half of our group of 76 said, we're going to the top, and you can, you can see some buildings up there at the top. And so uh, Josh Davis, Josh, is he here? Would you stand up? Uh, Josh Davis he hiked this thing in 25 minutes. Woohoo! I was right behind him <laughs> about 20 minutes later. <laughs> and so congratulations to Josh uh, leading the way up there. But how do you think our country would handle mandatory military service today? Do you think they would serve joyfully? You know, we can thank God for a volunteer army. Here in Psalm 100, we discover that we can have real joy when we serve others, real joy when we serve God, when we serve our family. I'm talking about uh, uh, parents serving teenagers and, and spouses and teenagers serving parents. I'm, I'm talking about serving interchurch family here. I'm talking about serving our country. You can have joy when you serve. Look with me at verse 1, Psalm 100, and in verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. We are to make a joyful noise to who? To who? To the Lord, to God. God wants us to get excited about who he is. We don't have any problem shouting for our basketball team, our football team at their games. You remember earlier this year, back in February, Philadelphia Eagles, New England Patriots, the fans, no problem shouting at their TV when their team made a good play, when their team made a touchdown, you made some noise. You know what I'm talking about. You poor New England fans. You had such a tough night back then, didn't you? All I can say is, is uh, it's a good thing we had our backup quarterback in so we could make it close. <laughs> Do I get an amen on that? All right. Uh, we have no problem making some noise when we root for our hometown team. But very few Christians seldom raise their voice in praise to God. Look at verse 1. Would you finish it for me? Make a what? Uh, I was pretty sorry. Let's do it again. Make a joyful. a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, who is to do this? All ye lands. This is not just for the Jewish people. This is for all people all over the world. It doesn't matter what country you come from or what country you were born in. You're to make a joyful noise to God. This is for all of the Gentiles. 
Why is it that when Christian people come to the house of God on the Lord's day that they rarely share a smile, they rarely share the joy of the Lord? This statement sounds like a command. Do this. Do what? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You don't have to know Hebrew to understand this. What God is saying is make a joyful noise to him. Uh, one pastor said, if you're happy in the Lord, notify your face. All right? Notify your face. That's a good idea. Now, notice the next command, and this is our focus this morning. Who are we to serve? The Lord. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Uh, he'll either hate the one and love the other. He'll hold the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and wealth, Matthew 6, 24. We have two commands in verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. We all have seen people, not here hopefully, but we've seen people who come to church as if they are coming to a funeral service. Coming to church should be the exact opposite of that. We're coming to a resurrection service. Our Lord was raised from the dead. Last week, 76 of us from our church family went into an empty tomb. Now, you talk about a roller coaster of emotions. In one moment, uh, you're walking over to the right side and you're standing overlooking Golgotha, the place of the skull, an ancient execution site, a place where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, a place of agony, a, a, a place of suffering. And in that moment, you begin to imagine and, and remember back in your mind's eye, Jesus dying upon the cross for your sins, for my sins. Jesus dying to take all the penalty of my sin, which would take me forever in hell, and there he died for me, a place of great suffering. And then you walk from that sight with that emotion in your heart, and you walk through an ancient garden, and you come to a cliff face. And on that cliff face, there's a hole in the wall, a small door, and there's a tomb. And that tomb is empty. And that tomb, it's not Jesus' tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. Jesus only needed it for three days. He only borrowed it for three days. And the emotion there is such joy and such celebration and such peace and such victory. A roller coaster of emotion. And so we are here today to celebrate that Jesus Christ is alive. He is not there. Uh, you'll notice the little stones there below the window. You see what happened is in the Byzantine area, they built a church right in front of it. And they knocked a hole in the wall so people could look from the church and look into the tomb. They identified it as Jesus' tomb. I want you to know that, that, that this is a, 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 what we do every Sunday. I mean every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday. It's a celebration of that fact that he is alive. And like all of the other families on the trip, we wanted to take a picture to remember the moment when we walked into that empty tomb. And for us to remember, he is not here. For he is risen, as he said. And because of what happened there, we can come into his presence today and sing joyfully right here. What do we sing? I serve 
a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And so this is who we serve. God, our Savior. Now, why are we to serve him? Why? We find that here in verse 3. Here we find our motivation to serve him. And I think we all need some motivation once in a while. Uh, some days it's hard to find motivation. Some days motivation finds you. Isn't that right? <laughs> pedal, pedal. Well, I find in verse 3 the motivation we need to serve him. First of all, God is Lord. Verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Uh, we saw the ancient ruins of pagan altars at Tel Dan where Jewish people sacrificed their children to false gods. You know, not much has changed in 3,000 years. People still sacrificing their unborn children, their partially born children with abortions to the false gods of convenience, to the false gods of not enough finances, but false gods both then and now don't exist. There's only one God. There on page 3, why are we to serve him? Because God is creator. In verse 3, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. You can believe in evolution. You can believe that aliens planted life form in this planet. Or you can believe the truth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Why are we to serve him? Because God is Lord, God is creator, and then God is our shepherd. Verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God is not some distant force. He is a be being with personality, uh, with emotion, and God cares for you and he cares for me. And to prove that he cares for you, he sent his son. Jesus into this world. God commended, God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we are created, then he is our creator. If we are sheep, then he is our shepherd. If we enter his courts, then he is our king. And if we serve him, then he is our master. So who are we to serve? The Lord. Why are we to serve him? Because he is Lord, creator, and shepherd. One more thing I want you to see. How are we to serve him? With joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. Once we understand who he is, we can understand why we are to serve the Lord with joy. It's to be with joy. We serve the Lord with joy, first of all, because we have a relationship with him. As Christians, we don't have a religion. We have a relationship. Do you realize that most Christians are all the same? Most religions most religions are all the same. What you have is they have different names, but they all say the concept is, is you have to do something to get to the higher power. You have to do good works. You have to do good deeds. You have to do certain sacraments, and you can earn your way to God. Do this. Do that is what religion says. And Jesus comes along and says, done. It is finished. Jesus said, I did all the work. I purchased salvation when I died upon the cross. I offer you the free gift of eternal life, and you must 
receive it by faith. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And then on page four of your notes, I want you to see that we serve him with joy because we're thankful for all that he gave to us. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Oh, be thankful unto him and bless his name. We are thankful for all that he gives to us. We are totally dependent upon God for life. I mean, he created this planet, this planet alone that supports life. He created the air that we breathe. He knows every hair on our heads. His power, by his power, he holds the universe together. And it is by his grace your heart beats one more time every moment. That's his grace and power. And this is why we thank him. So, yes, you should serve joyfully. Serve God joyfully. Serve your family. Serve your church family. Serve your country joyfully. But how many Christians are looking for reasons not to serve? You know that there's too many people today give the same excuses they gave Jesus 2,000 years ago. Oh, Lord, I'm just too busy. I've got my own plans. I've got my own dreams. I've got this hobby and this sport and this pleasure, and they miss the joy that God has for them. Too many of us can't find joy in service because we, we choose or demand to be served rather than to serve. There in your notes, you'll never know if you have a servant's heart until someone treats you like a servant. And Jesus, he left an example for us to follow. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve. And so I encourage you today to seek the service God has gifted you to do and begin to experience the joy of a life of serving God and serving others. May we pray. Our Father, thank you for all that we have seen and heard and experienced today. Now may we desire from the depth of our heart to love you. And out of that love, we will serve you. And as we serve, we can do it with joy. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I have two questions. The first question is, do you know for certain that heaven is your home? Was there a moment that you were born again into the family of God? that you made a commitment to trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. You're not trusting in your sacraments, not trusting in your good works or church membership or sincerity, but you're trusting in Christ alone to wash away your sins and take you to heaven. If that's your testimony and you're not ashamed of Jesus Christ, would you simply raise your hand all over this auditorium? God bless you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. It's a pastor. I, I think I'm going to heaven. I hope... I'm going to heaven, but I have some doubt. If you have doubt, I want you to know God brought you here today to hear this message of hope, the message of love, the message of forgiveness. And the Bible says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Well, that's praying. What do you pray? Romans 10, 9 tells us. You pray that you are trusting in Jesus Christ who died for you as your substitute and that he rose again and you receive this gift of salvation. Now, if you're not sure that heaven's your home 
If you're not sure 100% that when you die, you'll go to heaven, then join me today. Pray with me today and receive this wonderful gift. It's not about joining a church. It's not about getting baptized or performing a sacrament. You can believe in the same way the thief on the cross believed. Would you pray with me right now? You can pray right there in your seat sincerely. You can pray silently during this invitation prayer as I did many years ago. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you just prayed with me and you meant it, I'd like to pray for you. Would you simply raise your hand, hold it up high for just a moment. I'll not call you out. I'll not embarrass you. But you say, Pastor, I just prayed with you, and I meant it to receive Christ as my own Savior. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. I pray with you, and I meant it. God bless you. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Anyone else? I pray with you from my heart. Now, Christian, has God spoken to your heart today? Are you serving God with joy? Are you serving your family members with joy, your church family, and your country? We can do it by voting. We can do it by praying for our leaders, by being a good citizen with joy. Father, may you bless in the invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we have that opportunity, we had a great trip. Um, Pastor is a very wise man, you know. He scheduled this long time ago before we even knew we were going on the trip so that he'd get the night off, and I don't blame him, no. So if I fall asleep, somebody will just come up, finish reading what I am. I'll keep turning the pages. Pastor Colton, you look fresh, and uh, so you can help us out. But no, what a privilege it is to open the Bible and be able to preach the Word of God, and, and, and it's and I can tell you, I sat through, I, I, just like a lot of you, I sat there and listened to testimonies last year. You know, remember this, those people that came up and gave testimonies, the grubs that came up, and, and the Bergs, and then, and then Jake, and I, I, can't, I can't top your speech, buddy, I'm going to do my best, so I'll try. And then Robin, who came up and gave us testimony about the impact that the Israel trip had on their life. And you know what? They weren't lying. You see, when, when, you, when you take something that is words and you put pictures to it, it's a lot easier to read. You know, I'm, a, I'm an ESPN guy, so, you know, reading the articles doesn't happen much, but watching the pictures, it's really easy to understand. And be able to walk down the same road that Jesus walked. To understand where Christ went and what he did for us. It's amazing. You know, I, it's sad as we're walking down the streets, there's a place on one of the walls where they say that Jesus put his hand on that wall. And so there were people up there kissing the wall. And I just, it just, it just hurt your heart to know that that's what they were doing as a way to get to heaven. 
and their way of, of, of getting back to him. God wants us to give back to him, but he wants us to give back with our lives. And so as we have opportunities, we talk about it, we talk about those different things. It's from going through the Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, that's, um, by the way, I, we've, I find, found out that the Israelis are not built like me. Um, for some reason, they're a little shorter and a little less broad. And so when they built Hezekiah's tunnel, they didn't build it for me. Um, but I went through it anyway. And uh, they sell, as people told me, they sell lard and uh, oil at the front. And they rub it on your shoulders to make sure you get through. And so what a blessing it was just to do something that, that, that awesome. It was an awesome thing to see how they were able to do that without the technology we had. And, you know, so that's something fun, you know, floating in the Sea of Galilee, or the, the Dead Sea. I did do that, amazingly. I was able to float. And then, you know, to see King Herod and his palace that he had built there on the Mediterranean Sea. Just amazing how he would have just obviously just amazing man of in that talent in that way and so you just to see some of those cool sites but not to see the cool sites but to see where jesus walked and we see where jesus taught and as he taught on the mount of the beatitudes and he got to preach and he said a, a city on a hill cannot be hid and as we looked back over to the hill there was a city on the hill it's amazing how jesus taught what he saw it makes us want to go, hey, you know what? We should teach what we see, what Jesus brings to our attention. So, you know, I, I, I know that a lot of, we can have our favorite spots. You know, I, I think every spot was my favorite spot. But one of the spots that, that impacted my heart was a spot that hurt my heart. And so as I looked at this city, and you saw this cave, and I have a picture of it because it reminds me. That cave is called the Gates of Hell. And why? Because there were people, and there's another close-up shot. There were people that were willing to sacrifice their children to a false god. And as we had opportunity and having the best pastor ever, he takes the Bible and he opens it up. And, and I'd already read the passage of Scripture, but it just when somebody else reads it, and when pastor reads it, just it's like that. He read the passage from Matthew chapter 16 where Christ teaches his disciples right there, at that, right in front of this place, and tells them and reminds them that the church is going to be built on Jesus Christ, on the cross and what he's doing for us. And it just, that, that, just pricks your heart but it saddens you too because there are people willing to give something they don't have to give for something they won't ever gain and that's the eternity in heaven and so as I we had that opportunity it challenged me but it also made my my view of the scripture totally different and so as I as they all told you that if you have the opportunity you need to go because it will change what you see and what you hear the next time Pastor Wendell gets to come up here and preach, the next time Brother Schneider teaches us a Bible study in, in his ABF. It's going to come alive to you because you will see it and you'll understand it. And so just a challenge. I know Pastor didn't ask me to do that, but I did that anyway because 
I felt like that was, that's more important than anything I could share about anything else at this point because it's impacted me. The Bible tells us if, if, you, if, you, if you're touched by something, you need to do what? Share it. So I was touched, so I'm going to share it. And you should do the same. If the cross has touched you, you need to tell others about the cross. And so as we have this opportunity, as we, as we think about the Bible and what it means to us, let us not forget what he did for us. And so as we, we transition into the message, that was just an introduction. And uh, I, you said I have till 8.20, right? Because kickoff's not till 8.20. You know, I, I think you scheduled me for the Eagles night last year too. And so I don't know if that, I'm not seeing a pattern. I don't know if it's just something, I don't, I don't know. So, but um, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And um, I, I, had, I had already prepped, um, obviously I, I, I prepped the message. I had already be, get, began the process of, of writing down what I thought God would want me to share tonight. And um, so as I wrote it down, as, as I studied it for it, um, it's amazing how it changes when you see it differently and how it impacts you. And so I, I knew right then, when I, once we went to the spot and we stood there, I knew that God had wanted me to study this prior because he knew I needed it. So I needed it. I learned something. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to share it. So if you don't need it tonight, you can go ahead and go back to sleep and uh, wake up for 820. But at the end of the day, I will tell you this, this is something that spoke to me. And I, I have to share it. And so a verse that I have memorized, I use regularly in my life, it's uh, Romans 8.37. And it says this, Now in all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And as I thought about that verse, and I think about this, I think about being a conqueror. And what it took for David to become a conqueror. The steps of a conqueror. And you know, I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing that we as Christians have is that we have conquered the opportunity of separation from God eternally. And where does that come from? Oh, that comes because of what he did for us on the cross. You see, Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We as, we as unbelievers, we have all sinned, and we as believers have sinned. The good thing about it is that God, God sent his son to die for us on the cross to pay that penalty. And he said this, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we can't be a conqueror in our life if we haven't gotten to the point first off to be a conqueror when it comes to our spiritual life and giving our life to Jesus Christ. You see, without that, we can't even get into this next phase. You see, so that's why I'm going over that first phase, which is making sure you have first off given your life to Christ. You see, God loved us so much, he gave his son. And he gave it so that you and I would have the privilege to overcome those things in our lives. You see, what do we need? We need him. And so as we, we talk about that, that we get to the next passage, the next section of our, of our walk, and our, our idea, the, the thought process for me was this, the steps of becoming or being a conqueror. What are the steps of being a conqueror? If you have your Bibles, you've got to open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll stand and read for a couple verses. This is for those that just flew in last night late, and you're still kind of on jet lag. We'll have you stand up while we read the Bible. 
Otherwise, you'll fall asleep because of my great reading voice, I'm sure. Uh, verse 28 is where we're going to start. I know everybody knows this. Everybody's, everybody sitting in here knows this story. But bear with me, and let's try to take it from a different angle tonight. And verse, uh, verse 28, it says this, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake from the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those those few sheep in the wilderness. I know thy pride and the haughtiness and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest to see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him towards another and spake after the same manner, and the people answered him again and after the former manner. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail before him. Thy servant will go and fight the Philistines. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistines to fight with him, for thou art but a young youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear. And took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out, of, out after him and smote him. And he delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivereth me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistines. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it means to me. I pray for each one of us tonight, myself particularly, that you'll help me to take away something tonight. It'll speak to me. It'll continue to help me grow to become the conquerors you, have, you want us to be in our lives. Thank you for the example of David. Thank you for the example that you send by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, I thank you for what you've done. Praise, praise you for the opportunity we have to serve you and speak your name. Lord, I pray that you'll give me the words to say that it will be impactful and meaningful tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. As I read this passage of scripture, I thought, you know, we oftentimes, you know, um, we sat on the bus after reading, you know, we read this passage, and I was going to embarrass the boys and have them come up and read tonight, but I decided that was hard enough doing it in front of 60 people, let alone in, in, in the church in front of everybody else, and Josh Davis thanked me for that, probably. He'll thank me later. But, um, but as I thought about it, I thought about, you know, what did it look like? You know, did you, do you guys understand what it looked like? Those of you that have never been to the Valley of Elon, do you understand what it looks like? Yeah, I mean, yes or no is an answer, right? Yes or no? The answer is yes. For those of you that have been there, you understand a little bit, right? Those of you that haven't, remember, we're reading words on a page again, right? So let's, let's look at some pictures really quickly. You're not going to take a long time to look at pictures. So we have a first picture here. That mountain right up there, the green, see the green, the lush green up there? That is where Saul would have been placed. The Israelites would have been on that mountain. Now, does that make sense to everybody? So everybody got me? So that mountain over there is the Israelite mountain. All right, so the next slide here. The next slide, you will see the Philistine Mountain. 
Okay? So we have the Philistine Mountains covered in trees, and there's, you know, you don't know what time of the year this was, but right up there, you have the Philistine Mountain and that one. So I'm standing in the middle, okay? And so our next little video, here's a video so you can see the expanse that's between these two armies, okay? So we'll have a quick, it's like a 13-second video here. You'll see everybody walking around, picking up some stones and taking some selfies. You see, we start at, we start at the Israeli mountain. We went all the way across to the, where the Philistines were camped. You see, that's, that's a pretty big valley, if you would ask me, right? You agree with me? I mean, we sometimes think a valley. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have see, seen a valley before. Some of you guys think valleys like this big, right? This is a pretty good-sized valley. And, and somebody said to me, I wonder if they could hear across the valley. And I said to him, I said, well, Goliath was a pretty big man. So that means he has a pretty big what? Yeah, so pretty big man, pretty big voice, right? Okay, everybody can hear me across there. So I said, they probably, you know, and there echoes over the valley, right? You know, as Goliath makes fun of the soldiers, makes fun of God. You know, and so then, so then I have another picture here that, of two of our seniors here standing in the, the Valley of Elon. And so we don't know exactly where this happened, but I'd like to think that right where they're standing is where Goliath was laying, okay? I, you know, in my mind, that's where it is, okay? And so then you'll see what does David have to do to get ready, right? So, so one of our seniors demonstrates what David did, and David was down in the brook, right, picking up his five smooth stones. And so, you see, so it helps visualize that, yeah? So it helps you think through, okay, this is where the battle took place. And, and so, so as we think about becoming a conqueror, and we think about David, who became a conqueror, who won a battle against a, a very large man, a very big person that he, in his own power, could not do. Would everybody agree with me that David in his own power would, by himself would not be able to conquer Goliath? And we all agree that. And, and that goes to our lives. You know, there are things in our life that without God's power in them, we would never be able to conquer them. And that first one is, very simply, salvation. We would never be able to go anywhere without Christ dying on the cross for our sins. You see, so, so we, we think through that at, as I thought about that, the, the verse that caught my attention, it was right here, it's verse 29, it says this, is, and David said, what have I do now done? He's asking his brother, what did I do? And then he says what? Next, next phrase, and this is the phrase that I want you to think about, is there not a cause? You know, let me ask you, church, is there not a cause that we have? Is there not something that we should be doing for Jesus Christ. You see, David realized that. David saw it. His brother didn't. His brother was thinking, man, you're just trying to stir waves. You're just here because you have a bad attitude. Okay, naughty, naughty heart, a bad attitude. You, you're, you're just trying to cause problems. You know, but David didn't stop there. What did he do? When his brother rejected him, what did he do? He turns over to what? Somebody else, and he says the same thing. Do you know why? Because he knew in his heart there was something that needed to be done. You know, let me ask you, are there things that have to be done? Are there jobs that need to be done? Yes. The question is, are we willing to step to them? Are we willing to take on these jobs and become a conqueror in Christ? As I thought about that, I thought about some things that would make it possible for David to be able to be a conqueror in his mind. And to be able to be a conqueror for us to be able to mimic and, and follow after. 
And so as I thought about that, I thought about the first thing I wrote down this is, is his past experiences. And I know David is just really fresh in the Bible at this point in, verse, in chapter 17, but there's a whole chapter, chapter 16, prior that talks about who? David. You see, we, we get, sometimes we get lost in this big moment and we forget how we got to that moment. And so what happened is there's some past experiences that prepare David for what God is going to use him for in chapter 17. You see, he's setting him up. He's showing him, giving him some steps to becoming a conqueror. And what we see is this. In chapter 16, I'm not going to read all the verses to you. Uh, we don't have time, and, and I want to get you out on time. But chapter 16, go to verse 11. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read these two verses because I think these are important. I really do. They've, they, they make sense to me. And it says this, And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto, him, unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for he will not sit down till he come, come hither. And he, and he sent and brought him in. He was a ruddy, and with, uh, with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look upon, or to look. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now think about this for a second. Where's, I mean, let's just, let's just be honest. If Pastor Wendell came to your house, where would you be? Hanging out with Pastor Wendell. I'm telling you, if he came to my house, I'm going to be right there with Pastor Wendell. Hey, listen, okay, so maybe, let's, let's say it's not Pastor Wendell. Let's say it's, uh, you know, Carson Wentz. Hey, Mr. Davis, Carson Wentz comes to your house. You're gonna, what are you going to do? Go to the back room, put your feet up? No, what are you, you going to do? Hang out with him? Make sure you're there. Think about this. What do you think Samuel was to the Israelites? I mean, remember, who was Samuel? The prophet of God. He shows up at your house? Man, I'm telling you, that's a, that's, I'm having a blast right now. I don't care how old, how young, but where was David when Samuel showed up? He was doing his job. It, past experience proves that no matter what was going on, David was going to do his job. You see, without that past experience, what are we going to have? We got nothing. You see, David's out in the field watching his sheep, doing what he's supposed to be doing, obeying his father all the way, despite the coolest person in the world in that moment in time showing up at your house. I'll tell you this. If Carson Wentz came into this lobby, I would not be in my office doing my job. I'm sorry, Pastor Wendell. <laughs> I would not. I couldn't. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to contain myself. You see, Samuel came, and he still did what his father asked. You see, so now, think about this. He's anointed king. So now think about this for a second. So he's anointed king, so in, in, in a short while, he's going to become the king, right? At some point, no one knows, right? And the next part of chapter 16, what happens? I'm not going to read it for you, but what he is called to do is he's called to soothe the soul of Saul. Now you tell me. Okay, so David is a young man. He knows he's going to become king. Saul is the king. And now he has to go and play his harp for Saul. Now you tell me, do you think that's an easy job? I will tell you right now that I would not want that job. But David, what did he do? He went 
and he did it out of obedience to the king. Even though the king was not necessarily the best king, he did it out of obedience. You see, I wrote this down, I wrote this down. Past experiences, but the first thing we see is the prior opportunities that he had. He had some opportunities to, dis, to, to disobey his father. He had opportunities to disrespect the authority of the king. He had opportunity to not obey, and he chose to obey. How about us? And that's sometimes difficult because sometimes those things are good. But as a wise person told me, good, better, best. You see, he knew what was best. I wrote this down. This is a, a quote from Vincent Van Gogh. He said this, Great things are done by a series of small things brought together. It doesn't ha that big thing can't happen if you don't do the little things. And so I think it's so powerful. You see, then it goes to verse chapter 17 where, where David is watching his, his sheep, and then he is called to take something to his brothers. You know, but what is important in there, I think is important, is that not only did he take and obey and he hiked down to his brothers to give them something, but what did he do? He got somebody to watch his sheep for him. He didn't, didn't forget about his task that he was responsible for. You see, I think sometimes we, we, can, we can care, if we're not careful, we can forget what God has called us to do. It may not be the, 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 the best job in the world, but it is a job he's called us to at this moment in time, to be a blessing in that moment. And so we have our past, uh, prior opportunities. But you see, with every opportunity, there were, prop, there were prior opposition. There was prior opposition. Each one of those jobs that David, that the Bible records, there was opposition that was met. The first part about watching his, his dad's sheep. He had to give up what he wanted, right? To be there, to hang out, to listen to Samuel. Hey, listen, he was anointing the king. He came to anoint the king, and he wasn't even invited to the party until the end. You see, the other part of watching the sheep, what happened? We all know the story. There was this lion and this bear that came, right? Remember? Remember those stories part, right? There was opposition to him doing his father's tasks. But every opposition he met with the power of God. You see, the opposition of playing the harp to soothe Saul's soul was what? I can tell you right now that that would be a difficult task. As I thought about all those tasks, that was one that I kind of had a hard time with. But that showed the humility of David. And so we, we have opposition that can be faced. Let me ask you a question. Are we afraid of opposition? opposition? You see, to be a conqueror, we start with our opportunities. What each opportunity has opposition. But there's also the cool part, which is the victory. You see, his past experiences all entailed opportunity, opposition, and victory. He was an overcomer. And every situation he overcame. Watching the sheep and the lion and the bear, he overcame. Right? Got through God's power. Hey, listen, he, he played the harp. And, and if you look at verse chapter 17 and verse 15, it says this. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep. So when Saul went out to battle, David was done. He overcame playing the harp for Saul. He had finished 
the job. He wasn't kicked out of the job. He finished the job. He was an overcomer. He was victorious. Each situation was a step to him becoming a conqueror down the road. Oh, it was little. But remember, all those little things added together becomes a lot. You see, we wrote down that we have our past experiences. But what I think, and I think is the coolest part about it, is that there were some personal exercises. So David, in order to become a conqueror, past experiences. But then there's some personal exercises. I was thinking about this, and I thought about, you know, you know how often do many of us go to the gym? Yeah? All right? We, we go, I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out, right? Most of us don't go to the gym and sit there and watch everybody else work out and then go home, right? I don't know. Is that what you guys do? Because that's what I do. It's really fun. Actually, my basketball team, that's what I do. I actually make them run up and down. I don't get in shape, but they do. You see, I remember when I was a senior in high school, the summer of my senior year, my dad, my dad was like, you know, you want to get a scholarship for soccer? You can, there's some things you can do. So I said, oh, yeah, Dad, why don't you run for me, and I'll just watch you, and then I'll be ready for that scholarship, right? No. So he said, all right, here's your plan. Here's your game plan. Here's your routine. So I went out to the airstrip that we had out in the middle of the jungle, and and we began the, you know, you run down to the end of the airstrip and come back twice. And then when you're done with that, the airstrip, you know, I don't know, if, how, how many of you have ever been on a jungle airstrip before? And I, once again, I'm trying to draw a picture for you. It's long, green jungle on every side. But they have these little white cones, like little white cones. That dictates how far you are on that airstrip. Every hundred yards, there's one of these cones. So my dad would say, okay, so we'll start with, you sprint to the first cone. And you jog to the next one, you sprint to the next one, jog to the next one, sprint to the next one, jog to the next one. And then we did them backwards. Sprint backwards, jog backwards, sprint backwards. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Here's a little thing, right? I could have sat on the end of the airstrip and watched my dad do it, but would it have done me any good? No. I had to personally exercise myself. I had to physically myself get up and do it. You see, David had to get that personal thing. I learned two things from that exercise routine. The first thing I learned is that I was never going to be a sprinter or a cross-country runner. <laughs> that was the one thing I learned. Um, it was very important in life. I was able to dictate that I wasn't going to do that. I was going to do something more like this. The other thing I learned was this. I learned was that if I did not run the workout, I did not get any faster. I did not get any stronger. If I didn't physically do it, I would not increase and improve. You see, I had to personally exercise something in order to gain. You see, David personally exercises. He has a few exercises he does in order to prepare to become the conqueror. Number one, he relies on God for protection. The first thing is he has to have a full reliance on God. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and our strength. He, he relied on God for that protection. How do we know that? Well, if you go to your Bible, look at chapter 17, look at verse uh, 37. It says this, David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivereth me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, 
he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Now, now think about this for a second. God, David says to Saul, hey, I, I, God is going to protect me. And what does Saul do? Now, hold on a second. And Saul says, he goes, no, 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 no. Look at verse 38. What does he say do? What does he do? And Saul armored David with his armor. And he put his helmet on a brass upon his head. Also, he armored him with a coat of mail. Right? What do he do? Saul goes, oh, you, yeah, you're going to rely on God to protect you? No, David. No, 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 no. I got you. Here, put this on. You see, and what does David do? I can't use this stuff. I can't. This isn't going to work for me. You see, because David wasn't relying on the world and the things of the world to protect him. He was relying on God. We heard a great testimony this morning about the shield that God put over TJ. It had nothing to do with the armor that he had. It was about the armor he had in Jesus Christ and him watching over him. You see, David had faith that God would protect him no matter what. What we see is David uses the protection that the Lord had given him in the past, in his past experiences, and the faith that God would protect him as he had promised. And how do you think he knew that? Why do you think David knew that God would protect him in this battle? I'll tell you. Because he was anointed what? King. Why would God anoint him king if he wasn't going to live through the Goliath scenario? Does that make sense to everybody? I mean, he anoints him king, so now he's going to have him killed in battle? Makes no sense, does it? He hadn't even had a chance to have that. He knew he would be protected because of his faith and his reliance on God. He relied on God for his protection. The first exercise many of us need to take is that we need to rely on God for the protection in our life. We put a lot of things up in our life that we try to use to protect us. Just like there's many people walking down the street and kissing the wall where Jesus put his hand. Why? They're using something to protect them, but it doesn't do anything for them. Because the faith in Christ is not there. You see, not only did he exercise the protection, and I, I, I love this quote, there's this saying is this, there's no safer place than to be in the middle of God's perfect will. No matter what. And if God had him on that battlefield, he would have protected him. Because he was there to protect him. You see, but it didn't stop there. He didn't just exercise protection he went a little further. He relied on God's power. You see, Saul tries to give him his sword. He says, and David girded his sword upon his armor, and he, um, he assayed to go, but he had not proven it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proven them. And David put them off. You see, David relied on the power of God. He didn't rely on the things that man thought would work to win. You know, a lot of us, we think that that sword or the spear could have beaten Saul, uh, the giant. But that wouldn't have done the trick. It was God who did it. And the power of God. You know, the, the, our, our lives as Christians, what we must remember as we face trouble and, we struggle, uh, and the struggles and the obstacles that will, we will come in our path, we need to put the power of God in the place of what we think we can do to get over it. 
You see, I, I, I know I don't look like I was a hurdle runner, but in, we had field day, and they made us run hurdles, yes? And so by default, because I wasn't the fastest guy, remember, we're not the 100-yard dash runner, you know? So the hurdles, you, you don't have to be fast. You just got to be good technique, right? And so I was good technique. I just knocked them all over and kept running, <laughs> all right? But, but I, I would try to get over these hurdles. And a lot of us, we have those hurdles in our life, and we, we try to do them on our own power instead of God's power. And those hurdles come, and when they come, if we haven't practiced relying on God's power, we try to do it in our own power. David was relying on God. The third thing I, write, I wrote down is this. He relied on God's protection, for God for protection. He relied on God for power. He relied on God for provision. I wrote this in verse, verse 40. It says this, and he took his staff in his hand, and he chose, and so I brought them just in case some of you didn't think I brought stones back. I brought some stones back. Now, now what, I, what I heard is that the, the stone that he used for Goliath, because Goliath, remember, Goliath was small, right? So, so, I mean, do you think he used, like, a little tiny stone like this? I mean, he used to, you know, he had to use at least, a, you know, a good-sized stone, so I made sure to get one good one. But, but what was true about these stones was what? The stones were what? Smooth. Why were they smooth? Because the creek ran over them. God provided him some perfectly good stones. Why? See, he didn't rely on himself. He didn't bring them. Remember, he didn't try to go searching out. He walked down from Saul's little, remember, you know, Saul was up on a hill there. And he walked down from Saul. looked and when he looked there was a creek and he walked through and he picked up some smooth stones that God prepared for him God provided for him God wants to provide for us the question is are we relying on him you see we want to be a conqueror we want to have that ultimate prize we want to gain that ultimate thing we want to topple that giant but if we aren't exercising some reliance on God in these areas, then guess what? We're going to struggle in toppling that giant. You see, David in himself and what he appeared was nothing. But with God, it was possible. And the reason we know that is the verse that he uses to Saul was the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and the bear. He would deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. He knew God would. Let me ask you, do you know God will? When that struggle comes, when that trial comes, what's your preparation? Where are you at in your steps? Step number one, past experiences. Opportunity, op, uh, opportunity, opposition, overcome. Personal exercise. Reliance on God's protection. Reliance on God's power. Reliance on God's provision. But finally, what we see is in verse 48 through verse 51. It says this, And it came to pass, when the Philistines arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened 
and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. He ran. He didn't walk. He didn't hide. He ran. Why did he run? Because he knew who he had on his side. Hey, you know what? Technique for beating a giant is what? Hide from him, right? I mean, come on now. Let's be honest. If I brought Cooper up here and had Cooper have to take me on, the best thing he could do is hide from me. Why? Because I'm a lot bigger than him. And once I get my hands on him, it's over. Guess what? When David saw the giant, he ran towards him because he knew who he had with him was bigger than that giant. You see, it says this, And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in the forehead that the stone sunk into the forehead and he fell upon the face of the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, with a stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. There was no sword. There was no power, worldly power in his hand. There was only what God had given him. You see, you want to be an overcomer. We want to be an overcomer in our lives. We have to have those things. We have to have past experiences. We have to have personal exercise. And finally, a phenomenal encounter. We have to have an encounter with our Lord and Savior. And God will get us through those tough times. You see, there are many of us sitting in this room that have had a phenomenal encounter. I had the privilege of having that phenomenal encounter when I was five years old. When I thought the rapture was happening, when the, when the cows went down cobblestone streets. And I thought, oh boy, here comes the rapture. Because it's loud. Have you ever heard cows on cobblestone? Okay. And I went into my mom and said, I need to pray and ask Jesus to save me. And I prayed that night and asked Jesus to save me. That was a phenomenal encounter in my life. But that's not the last thing that happens. There are many more things that can come and will come. The question is, are we preparing? Are we purposing in our heart to have the life, to have the same kind of attitude that David had? And say, is there not a cause? I believe we all agree there is a cause. So let's purpose and prepare to slay the giants that God sets in our path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time and the time that we can have to open your word. Lord, I, I know that I think the majority of everybody sitting in this room is, is a Christian and has had that first phenomenal experience with you. But there may be somebody that's sitting in this room that has not had that privilege, has not had that opportunity to accept you as their personal Savior. And Lord, that's the most important thing we can do. And we know that you want us to have a relationship with you. And that relationship starts with us giving our life to you. And Lord, I pray for each one that's sitting in here. If there's one that hasn't accepted you, Lord, I pray that you help them to do so. But Lord, I pray right now for those that are sitting in this room that are Christians. I pray that you help us become the conquerors you want us to be. I pray that you'll help us become those Davids 
that are faithful in the little things so that you can do something great with our lives. I pray that you'll help us all to be more like you today. And as we walk out of here and we look at the steps that made David a conqueror, I pray that you'll help us all to examine our lives and our hearts to become a conqueror for you. I thank you and praise you for what you've done. In Jesus' name.